You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, September 28th, 2021. I'm Coda Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Ellie Shannon explains updates in campus news, and I discuss how residents can give feedback on how the city uses COVID-19 resources. After that, Eliza Droder updates us on CSU's athletics. And then you'll be hearing the second part of a conversation between Ivy and Dr. Doreen Martinez about the cultural and historical context behind the Hughes Landback Initiative, which we heard at the beginning of last or we heard the beginning of last week on Thursday. Then Coda tells about the planned release of John Hinckley, who attempted to assassinate former President Ronald Reagan. Then we hear a podcast featuring a feature of painting the corners with Anton Schindler, where he explains the origins of baseball. After that, I'll be giving new information on COVID-19 and explaining the controversy in the Elizabeth Holmes trial. To conclude the show, I'll be telling you about the weirdest stories I've found recently. Let's move right into campus and local news. Hello, everyone. This is Ellie Shannon reporting your campus news at Colorado State University. It is the beginning of our sixth week of classes in this beautiful fall semester, and the CSU women's volleyball team is taking on Wyoming Tuesday. Go on to csurams.com and go to sports to tune into the game or watch at Moby Arena at 7 p.m. According to Piper Russell of the Collegian, the 51st Senate of ASCSU convened September 22nd to swear in new senators and associated senators, as well as ratify executive members of the Legislative Strategy Advisory Board. Genova Mumford, Tucker Anthony, and Bailey Reeves were all sworn in to ASCSU were all sworn in into ASCSU, and ASCSU also heard Resolution 5103 calling for President Joyce McConnell and CSU to issue a statement on condemning racist, transphobic, and discriminatory harassment. Additionally, the Senate heard Resolution 1504, which seeks to confront CSU about hidden biases when it comes to the compensation of faculty and staff. The next ASCSU meeting will be the night of Wednesday, September 29th at 6.30. CSU's Board of Governors recently voted to invest $11 million to close equity gaps as well as improve student success rate. CSU's graduation rate is at 70%, and about 60% of students receive some type of grant and scholarship aid from CSU, federal, state, and local sources. There is also research being performed on first-generation students, students of color, and others to help close equity gaps that may exist. To learn more about this, go to source.colostate.edu. Make sure to tune in to the Rocky Mountain Review this week, Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. to hear Coda and Ivy. Thanks for listening to my campus news for CSU. This is Ellie Shannon, and you are listening to KCSU on 90.5 FM. Hello there, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and this is your local news for today on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Larimer County is looking for input from residents on where they think the city's federal COVID-19 relief resources should go. According to Sadie Swanson at the Coloradoan, people are being asked to provide input via a short online survey. The survey asks what areas of people's lives were most negatively impacted by the pandemic, what resources or services would be most helpful, and what would make the community stronger. Additionally, the survey asks what areas people think resources should be directed to and lists several options, including childcare, small business grants, affordable housing, and public health. As of March 2021, the county had received about $48 million in federal funds for COVID-19 relief, according to data provided by the county. Almost half of that, or about $23 million, has been directed to housing and rental support, including eviction protection utility assistance programs. About $14.5 million in federal funds have gone to supporting public safety impacts from the pandemic, including COVID-19 testing and isolation for inmates at the Larimer County Jail, facility cleaning, and technology to allow for video court appearances. Other areas funded with federal dollars include COVID-19 testing and contract tracing, child care, remote learning, behavioral health support, and business support. The survey can be accessed at LarimerRecovers.org slash recovery-community-engagement. It's also available in Spanish. 
The city and Watermark Residential are considering a rezoning proposal for the development complex on North LeMay Avenue in Fort Collins. According to Pat Ferrier at the Coloradoan, Watermark Residential plans to host a virtual neighborhood meeting on October 4th to discuss rezoning the property at North LeMay Avenue and East Vine Drive, east of the Andersonville neighborhood, from an industrial zone to zoning that is more favorable to multifamily housing and commercial development. If the city agrees to the rezoning, it would clear the way for plans to move forward for over 300 apartments in potential commercial development. No formal plans for the development other than the rezoning have been submitted yet. They will require separate approval. If you want to weigh in on the potential zoning changes, the virtual neighborhood meeting will be from 6 to 7.30 the night of October 4th. Virtual participation information will be available at fcgov.com slash development review slash proposal in two days advance in the meeting. For more information on the proposal, visit fcgov.com slash development review slash proposals and look for the Watermark North LeMay Project, PDR 210013. A fourth Loveland police officer involved in Karen Gardner's arrest and excessive force settlement resigned from the police department. According to Sadie Swanson at the Coloradoan, Sergeant Phil Metzler resigned from the Loveland Police Department following an independent investigation into officers' use of force in the arrest of the then 73-year-old Karen Garner in June 2020. Metzler arrived on the scene of the arrest on June 26, 2020, as former Loveland officers Austin Hopp and Daria July were detaining Garner. He also signed off on Hop's use of force report and was named in a civil lawsuit filed by Garner and her family that was settled for $3 million earlier this month. Metzler had been on paid administrative leave while investigations into the arrest were ongoing prior to his resignation. Loveland Police Chief Bob Tyser, quote, engaged in the disciplinary review process for this investigation, end quote, when Metzler resigned, according to a news release from this past Wednesday. Tyser said in the news release, quote, A chief of police does not have the ability to prevent an officer re- from resigning, but this resignation closes one more chapter of an incident that has tarnished the hard work of the men and women at the Loveland Police Department who continue to serve with honor, end quote. Tyser will continue the disciplinary review process with the others involved in this investigation, according to the release. Previously, officers Hop, July, and former community service officer Tyler Blackett resigned from the department in April, two weeks after a civil lawsuit alleging excessive use of force was filed by attorney Sarah Scheichel on behalf of Garner and her family. Hop and July both faced criminal charges in connection to this incident. Hop was charged with second-degree assault, attempt to influence a public servant, and a misdemeanor co- misconduct charge. July faces three misdemeanor charges. That's all the news I have for today. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. We'll be right back. Hey there, I'm Abby from the Collegian at Rocky Mountain Student Media, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. My name is Eliza Drotar, and this is your RMR Sports Report. In CSU football, their last game on September 25th, the Rams lost to Iowa in Iowa 14-24. Our rushing leaders were Ajon Vivens with 17 attempts for 45 yards. Quarterback Todd Sentio with 50 yards rushing and 17 attempts and one rushing touchdown. Our top receivers were Trey McBride with 16 receptions for 59 yards and E.J. Scott with two receptions for 51 yards, and Gary Williams with the one receiving touchdown for the Rams. On the defense, the teams had three sacks for 21 yards loss, Scott Patchen with seven total tackles and one and a half tackles for a four-yard loss, and one sack for a three-yard loss. Daquan Jackson had six total tackles and three tackles for 14 yards loss, 
and Devon Phillips with a sack for 10 yards loss. For quarterback Todd Sentio, he threw for 155 yards, 16 for 30 in passes with a 53% completion rate. He was sacked three times and had no interceptions. In women's soccer, the girls lost their last two games 0-1 at home against San Diego State and New Mexico. Their next match will be at home against Fresno State on Friday at 8 p.m. In women's volleyball, they won their first two conference games, sweeping both Utah and Boise State. Kennedy Stanford was leading in kills and total attacks for both games, getting her the title of Mountain West Player of the Week. Sierra Pritchard led in assists, and Alexa Romeliotis led in digs. The next match is Tuesday against Wyoming at Moby Arena at 7 p.m. In cross-country, the most recent event, the Bell Dillinger Invitational in Oregon. In the women's division, the Rams finished second, and in the men's division, the Rams finished sixth. Their next event is the USSC Open in October. In women's tennis, the Rams began their season at the Bedford Cup against Air Force in Colorado Springs. Radka Buskova and Matia Mahavik became the doubles champions of that tournament, beating the duo from Northern Arizona. If you are interested in student tickets, go to csuram.evenue.net for student tickets for volleyball, football, and more. My name is Eliza Drotar, and this is your RMR Sports Report. This is the second part of my two-part interview with Dr. Doreen Martinez, Associate Professor of Native American Studies in the Ethnic Studies Department at Colorado State University, who I interviewed last week regarding the Hughes Land Back Initiative and its historical and cultural contexts. To hear the first part, you can go online to check out last week's episode at kcsufm.com. One of the demands the initiative has was that the Hughes Land would be preserved as open space so that religious and cultural ceremonies could be held there for multiple different Native American cultures. Uh, Would you be able to tell us a bit about some of the sort of spiritual significance that indigenous communities see for the, this land? Certainly. I mean, I I think that there's such a huge spectrum and, and I would actually say not just that land. I mean, again, this is where I worry that we're focusing on a particular kind of acreage or a particular lot, right? Land itself has significant meaning to indigenous communities, whether that's considered public or private, if it's my backyard or if it's this state park or this, you know, and that's really important and that it can get lost when we kind of truncate it into this specific lot someplace, right? And you have to, you know, so we want to be careful in that, Certainly, there's going to be variations around how people engage with this relationship. And again, I would use the word responsibility. People will also use the word respect or reverence or or a number of other things in terms of that. It's, you know, land is um, what teaches us because, you know, of natural reasons. So there's a number of things. So I'm going to focus on also summarizing that to some extent. So one is that. When we talk about spirituality from indigenous places, it's a 24-7, 365, you know, it's something that you do constantly. And there might be particular engagements or activities and or what people consider ceremonies that they do on land. But when I think of like initially when you thought, when, when you mentioned, you know, the question, when you started the question, my first thought is like just giving thanks when I look outside my window. You know, and I see literally, I literally just saw a bunny rabbit out here, you know, and actually, you know, being gracious around the flowers that I see. And I don't mean this in this kind of like, I often refer to it almost like this kind of like, you know, more hallmark or kind of fluffy way. No, but gracious about literally giving space for plants to grow in their ways, to literally recognize, you know, that the birds are here, my relatives, and then the butterflies or even the the mosquitoes and the wasp and all these other things. That's all part of my spiritual existence with land. It all is because I recognize them as all components of that land. And then the definition of that, the language of spirituality for indigenous peoples is that so much of what we believe in and or seek to achieve. And again, we're working at this, you know, colonization has done damage in a lot of different ways. So we're working at bringing back a number of these types of spiritual connections too, 
But it is literally because I see that land is my teacher and that I'm going to learn and I'm going to be in my journey also with land. You know, the, the Muscularo believe that you, the, the, the human beings were created last in our origin stories. And, and in that, I was taught that in being created last, we've been given a gift to be here. And I think about that a lot when I think about our creation stories and our origin stories. Because remember, when we think about, you know, all our creation and origin stories, we talk about all the pieces, right? All the pieces of the world and all the pieces of the globe. We don't talk about the buildings, right? Or the industries. We go to that basic sense and, and place of all our pieces. And in that, all the pieces is that, the again, the humans, the two-leggeds, we were created at the end. Again, my belief system. And I just see it as my gift to be here, which means I have a responsibility. Then all those things that came before me and all the things that came before me were, again, the earth, the sky, the water, the um, the wing creatures, the creepy crawlies, that all of those things came before me. So I have particular obligations and commitments to those because of the benefit that I have in being here. All that is spirituality. And, I, and, and that's what I, I want to make that known to some degree or at least be able to voice that because too often i think that we truncate this idea of spirituality over particular kinds of engagements or activities that's the general larger overview of of kind of that of not kind of but of that question there are again laws and acts in place around having particular indigenous um, access to what would be most often considered sacred ground. But again, if you just heard what I was talking about, all ground is sacred ground. So this is where it also gets complicated around whether it's a federal statute, Historic Preservation Act, or um, NAGPRA, which is the Native American Graves Patriation, Repatriation Act. All of the, those are also in place to help facilitate some of the ways in which we might have, again, access to particular spaces. Yet, you would, you know, we'd, we would need to very much specify in which spaces of those are and who it is. That's where some of this gets a little bit more complicated than even also. So that goes back to where if you have 48 different tribes and nations, who are, who are we engaging in within those spaces? I think I would say that the other thing that I think is, is, is somewhat critical is that you know, who's seeking that access? You know, there's, there's, there's definitely different kind of protocols and different expectations that are carried from specific nations. And some of that literally isn't things for us to share to the public. We, it's not part of the, the respect. It's kind of like, you know, some people will say it's akin to like, if you would go like, you know, you know, in a church and ask, you know, a priest or some, or a father about specific, you know, practices they do. It's, it's not for everybody to know. So this is where at times this can get complicated because people want us to name specific things or even like identify a particular location. Well, it's only th those things are only supposed to be known to certain people within a tribe and particularly like maybe certain ceremonial leaders. There's information in which, you know, we would only want people in the tribe to know because, again, we have a responsibility to those. And if I just let them out there. I don't know what other people are going to do, and that can damage the responsibility that I have with those. So there's, again, so there's a variety of different points that I think I'm trying to make here. And one literally is, is the, the kind of broader definition and understanding of what spirituality means, particularly to indigenous peoples. The reality then of some of the legal and, um, and again, some of its law, some of its acts that are actually input into place to to give access, many of those situations, actually, you do have to get permits because in some ways we're in this world where there is a value to making sure we know what's going on. And I'm thinking about that in the sense that, you know, there's been a lot of theft on, you know, on indigenous lands of artifacts of archaeological evidence. There's been theft of pictographs and pictographs, you know, people literally taking sledgehammers to things. So permits seems contrary to our existence in the sense of why do we need to ask permission to somebody who literally seems, you know, um, disconnected and or is certainly not our authority in the sense of who we see ourselves as. Yet the world's more complicated. You know, and, and that there are some ways in which 
these can be useful in terms of making sure that the land then is respected in the ways that we seek. Are you going to get a situation where there's you know potential conflict? And I'm thinking very concretely of the example with um, Bear Butte, um, which a, a number of tribes actually have significant sacred uh, histories and ancestries there. And they've sought for it to be closed off at different times for them to engage in those ceremonies. It's also a site in which, so this is also, people call it Devil's Tower, but again, it's Bear Butte within the traditions of indigenous societies, particularly the Lakota and Dakota. You know, but the, the it's a it's a, a climbing mecca. So everybody, there are all these people who like to climb there. And the climbers have said, well, we don't want it to be closed off for their ceremonies because then we can't do what we want to do. So see how you can have the conflict of interests, which is why there is some need to have conversations and some negotiations in these spaces because, you know, competing interests just cause tensions and conflicts. So how can we proceed in a way that seems you know equitable and appropriate? Are there any misconceptions that you think non-natives would have about this issue and how would you want them to understand it instead? Well, I, I think that there are a couple different things that are going on currently. It's not even so, so. OK, so this would be the first thing that I would ask people to think about is that there are a number of pressing needs in indigenous country. There's a number of pressing um, concerns. There's a number of pressing desires and, and engagements. Climate change has certainly been one of the things that has most brutally hit indigenous societies where we bear the brunt of so many of the kind of catastrophes that are happening around that. COVID and the pandemic hit our communities also really hard and difficult. Um, education has consistently been one of the things that we have been working on in a variety of our different communities. Literally engagements around voting, you know, are prime in terms of some of the things that are going on in terms of different voting regulations. So I think for me, if the one thing that people miss is that there's there's a number of engagements that they can help with. There's also a number of really significant things that are happening around indigenous issues for indigenous nations. I think that at times we do in this space, particularly because this question has come up about Fort Collins, is that the difficulty of having presence in a, you know, a dominantly, you know, European white Caucasian city, I think for all people of color, it's huge, you know, that the percentages of our kind of presence in the city is small. So there's just this kind of struggle to where can we gather? You know, and again, I would say that to some degree for all people of color, because I know that that's been something that I've heard from a number of different places. Where do we have representation, whether that be policy recommendations or even just representation literally again in the curriculum? That's a big one. You know, I think that the state of Colorado, again, has done some things and made moves such as banning high school mascots of indigenous um, of peoples. Yet I don't want us to become invisible. Like, so where are we represented? You know, and where do we actually have presence? And we certainly want it way beyond some of the stereotypical places we find it, whether that's like Thanksgiving or Halloween or some of those types of things. So for me, that's the bigger issue that's missing. The more direct issue that's missing is I think that when people hear land back, they tend to think very linear in that that, that means literally physical land back. Yet many indigenous communities, and I think you mentioned this even earlier, Ivy, is that it means more than that. And I've been kind of playing with the idea of calling it, you know, hashtag land rep, R-E-P, meaning land responsibility, land reparations, land, you know, reciprocity. There's a number of things that we could play with that because I think it would evoke and speak more to all the different things that people want in this kind of land movement. I'd call it that more, this land movement, which gets back to who's taking care of it. And how are we? You know, I, I, I would love that, you know, there's most likely a bunch of different tree species in our local area that we really, really need to reintroduce and think about differently. You know, there's certainly different ways in which how are we utilizing water? Um, the city and other other organizations. So this would be great too, that it moved outside of just kind of like the public space, but 
divestment economically is one of the biggest things that a number of indigenous communities are seeking. And what we mean by that is so certainly like whether it's the city, whether it's CSU, whether it's all the microbreweries around us, like how is it that other companies are literally looking at where's our money going? Where's And that's the divestment push is economically, are we actually pushing for alternative and sustainable energies? Which again, if we don't do that, the impact that oil and gas and a number of other kind of extractive processes, coal, mining, have on indigenous peoples is just profound. So those are the other things when we talk about kind of this land movement and these land kind of responsibilities or reparations, that's what's missing, I think, in a number of the conversations that are going on um, currently and particularly in, in um, our location here. Is there anything else you would like to add to the discussion? I think that I think that I, I want to add how valuable it is for people to ask questions. And I think that there's been a lot of, you know, talk and or even proclamations of sorts and answers of sorts. And I think that one of the most valuable things that we can do is ask questions with individuals that may have more history and insights and get diversity and 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 of, of kind of perspectives on such critical issues. I want to ask questions to figure out how do we come together around partnerships? You know, I, I would love for us to kind of think about like all the different ways we can achieve the things in which I just mentioned, all those different kind of land movements, right? Whether it goes back to the divestment or it goes back to literally the kinds of things in which we're planting. And I know there's pushes in different spaces with the city, even doing kind of less grass and more you know, wild or, or um, xeriscaping options. But I think we can do more than that. I think we can do more around curriculum. We can do a lot more around kind of like our just our private industry in terms of businesses and who are they hiring or how are they actually using different kinds of resources and or indigenous representations, you know, and whether or not we're having, you know, commodity or commodification of particular interest. There's absolutely, there's stores and entities uh, around us that are doing that. So how do we educate people around some of that exploitation, which definitely damages the larger ways in which we're seeking to actually be indigenous peoples in a contemporary society? Because if I have to constantly deal with the, like the harm that's done to us, it, it's 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 it sucks our energy and it sucks our resources in terms of the things in which we're truly are trying to engage for our communities, our nations now, our youth, our futures. So I ask ask questions. You got to ask questions. We got to engage in a way that we can come to this with you know more all right, clarity. That around is all the questions I have for today. Uh, again, I have been speaking with Dr. Doreen Martinez, Associate Professor of Native American Studies in the Ethnic Studies Department at CSU. Dr. Martinez, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much, Ivy. The Poudre River Library District is a learning organization dedicated to providing open and equal access to intellectual freedom for the Larimer County community. At any of the three library locations, CSU students can use their RAM cards as library cards to stream movies and TV shows, access research databases, and check out books and equipment. Learn more at PoudreLibraries.org or by visiting one of the three public library locations. we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to National News Highlights for Tuesday. 
John Hinckley, who shot former President Ronald Reagan in a failed assassination attempt, won unconditional release set for next year. According to Carrie Johnson at National Public Radio, Hinckley was set to live in a mental health facility after injuring Reagan and three others in 1981. Hinckley is now 66 years old, and his lawyer said that his release in June 2022 is required by law, and that it's something he's ready for. Lawyer Barry Levine added that Hinckley's mental health prognosis is looking excellent. Hinckley remained in the care of a mental health facility following his failed assassination attempt in of Reagan since 1982, when he was found not guilty due to reasons of insanity. Restrictions on him began to ease in 2003, and five years ago he was granted the ability to live in the community with his mother in Virginia. The Department of Behavioral Health advocated for his unconditional release after they found he was at a low risk for future instances of violence. Levine said of his client that, quote, His mental disease is in full, stable, and complete remission, and has been so for over three decades, end quote. A daily COVID-19 retroviral treatment is in testing and could be ready for use within months. According to jo- Jonelle Alicia at Kaiser Health News, the treatment includes four pills once a day with patients reaching recovery around two weeks. Timothy Shehan, who works as a vi- virologist at the Chapel Hill campus of University of Northern Carolina, said, quote, Oral retrovirals have the potential not only to curtail the duration of one's COVID-19 syndrome, but also have the potential to limit transmission to people in your household if you are sick, end quote. Retroviral treatment is currently in use for a variety of conditions, including HIV and influenza. Tamiflu, for example, is commonly prescribed to influenza patients and reduces the risk of hospitalization or other serious complications. Antiviral treatment is being overseen by the director at the Division of AIDS at the at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, who has years of experience in testing virus treatment options. Due to, dis- due to disparities in maternal, health rate, in maternal death rates between Black mothers and the general popla- population in California, the state introduced a bill focusing on improving survival rates for Black people giving birth and their newborns. According to Kathleen Ronane at the Associated Press, Black women were six times more likely to die within their first year following pregnancy compared to white women from 2014 to 2016. The state also had a higher black maternal death rate from 2014 to 2017 than the national average. The bill, if passed, would collect additional information on pregnancy-related deaths and bring in more diverse experts to brainstorm solutions for unequal black maternal death rates. One policy advocate says that state-funded doulas, resource investment, and investigations will be required to truly work to solve the black maternal death crisis in California. Overall, Associated Press says that the U.S. ranks incredibly poorly when it comes to maternal mortality rates compared to other wealthy nations. In California, 56 per 100,000 black women died from 2014 to 2016 after giving birth compared to fewer than 10 white women per 100,000. Five people remain hospitalized Sunday after injuries related to an Amtrak train derailed in in Montana. According to a writer's team at the New York Times, train cars fell over, launching passengers through the cars. Eight of the the ten total passenger cars fell off the tracks near Joplin, Montana. Three were killed and dozens were injured, with five remaining in hospitals in stable condition. 145 passengers and 13 crew members were on board the Amtrak train at the time of the incident. The investigation into the derailing is ongoing, and the chief executive of Amtrak, William J. Flynn, is waiting for the investigation's completion before making any statements on the accident. Derailments typically come from a train moving too fast around a turn, and even when that isn't the cause, it tends to be from human error. Alan Zadambeski, the director of the Railroad Engineering and Safety Program at the University of Delaware, says that this incident doesn't appear to have been caused by human error. He believes that something within the train or the track likely broke. That's all for national news. I'm Koda Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU-FM with the Rocky Mountain Review. Now for a feature of one of KCSU's podcasts, Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 26 of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler, brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. Now before we start this episode, I want to give a brief look at the teams that have already punched their tickets into the playoffs, and the teams that are still fighting each other to the booth, going into the last week of September. Among the teams that have clinched are the Milwaukee Brewers, the Los Angeles Dodgers, and the San Francisco Giants, who, at the time of this recording, are only a win away from 100 wins on the season. The Atlanta Braves are still trying to fend off the Philadelphia Phillies for the top spot in the NL East, 
And the St. Louis Cardinals are sitting pretty comfortably in the second wildcard spot with the Cincinnati Reds still hot on their trail. In the American League, however, only the Tampa Bay Rays have secured a spot in the playoffs. The White Sox are only a win away from clinching the number one spot in the AL Central, along with the Houston Astros, who are in a similar situation in the AL West. Both spots of the AL wildcard are really still up for grabs, as the Boston Red Sox have a two-game advantage in the first wildcard spot, with the New York Yankees currently occupying the second spot. The Toronto Blue Jays and the Seattle Mariners are breathing down the necks of these two teams, however, as they look for a late September spark to send them into the Fall Classic. Continuing on now with last week's episode, in which we talked about almost all of the variations, at least that I could find, of the sport of baseball, including cricket, stickball, rounders, and so on and so forth. But during that discussion last week, a few questions about the origins of baseball came up. Where did baseball originate from? Did it develop as a new version of rounders, using aspects of it to form a new game? Or was it just completely different? Were there other games that directly led to and therefore influenced the game of baseball as we know it today? So, over the past few days, I've been taking a deep dive into these questions and trying to find a sure answer. However, as you can imagine, it's pretty complicated. First off, we need to talk about one huge misconception that stares in the face of baseball historians everywhere, that is the Doubleday Theory. The theory states that a man named Abner Doubleday invented the game of baseball that we know today, all the way back in 1839 in a little town called Cooperstown in New York. It's actually the reason why the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame is located in Cooperstown, as it was believed to literally be the birthplace of baseball. But is it really? Let's talk about this Abner Doubleday. Doubleday was born in 1819 in Boston Spa, New York, and became a Union Major General during the Civil War. He fired the first shot in defense of Fort Sumter and played a big part in the Battle of Gettysburg. He passed away in January 1893, and just 14 years after his death, the Mills Commission decided that the first scheme for playing baseball, according to the best evidence obtainable to date, was devised by Abner Doubleday at Cooperstown, New York in 1839. And that in the years to come, in the view of the hundreds of thousands of people who are devoted to baseball, and the millions who will be, Abner Doubleday's fame will rest evenly, if not quite as much, upon the fact that he was its inventor, as upon his brilliant and distinguished career as an officer in the Federal Army. Now, the weirdest part about this has to do with this Mills Commission that I mentioned, which was basically a group made up of star players as well as presidents of the National League, including a man named Abraham G. Mills, who at the time was the fourth president of the National League of Professional Baseball Clubs. In 1905, this commission set out to find the true origins of baseball. At one point, the commission sent out a publication asking for any American who had knowledge concerning the origins of baseball to come forward for a hearing. One of the gentlemen that showed up, named Abner Graves, same first name, which is kind of strange, was a 71-year-old mining engineer out of Denver, Colorado. He claimed that Doubleday invented baseball, as he stated that Doubleday was responsible for improving a local version of Town Ball, while he was in Cooperstown. He even claimed to witness Doubleday calling the game Baseball for the first time. Now, these claims were never actually investigated, and now seem pretty heavily fabricated. However, in the way of promoting the sport as fundamentally American, it was accepted. Historians have been hung up on this point for quite a while because of just one little catch. You see, at no point during Doubleday's life did he ever admit to playing a big role in the creation of baseball. 
After his death, hundreds of letters and journal entries had been found, with no evidence of Doubleday being involved with the creation of the sport. Instead, the commission is believed to have kind of wrongly attributed the origins of baseball to him. But after this theory was widely accepted, the belief that baseball was entirely American in its origin and grew up on American soil sparked a love for the game across the country in a somewhat patriotic way. That was until a man named Henry Chadwick stepped in. You see, Chadwick figured that there was at least some foreign influence in the creation of baseball, saying that it was derived from the English bat and ball game known as rounders. The two games shared a lot of the same rules, after all. And the funny part about it is that Henry Chadwick actually worked as an editor for Al Spaulding, one of the ex-star baseball players that was on the Mills Commission. Now, back then, Spaulding ran a business that is actually still around today, even though they don't really do a whole lot of baseball stuff anymore. But at that time, they created the first baseball glove and the first baseball. In 1878, I mean, the same company published the first official rule guides for baseball. So, I mean, you can understand how Spaulding and his company, with help from the Mills Commission, had so much influence over the game and ultimately the decision on the origins of the sport. And you can understand why Spaulding wanted this story to be true. I mean, at this time, the United States was still patching itself back together from the Civil War. I mean, believing a purely American-created game as our national pastime might have kind of helped with this repatriotism. During previous ceremonies held by the Mills Commission, audience members would frequently break out into chants of, No rounders! No rounders! I mean, the American public didn't want to believe in the foreign influence that their game had. But regardless, Chadwick stuck to his word, and instead of being ridiculed, his reputation actually grew. So much so that he was soon named the father of baseball. You see, Chadwick really did see the potential that this game had in becoming the national pastime, and saw the importance of it in American society and culture. Chadwick's arguments turned out to be more correct than that of Spalding's and turned Chadwick into an important stepping stone into figuring out the true origins of the sport. Also, just a little fun fact about Chadwick is that he's the only journalist currently enshrined in the Baseball Hall of Fame. So, you know, that's kind of (laughs) cool. But I think most importantly, because of this argument that Chadwick and Spalding had, I mean, it really started to slowly chip away at the real origins of baseball. Now, it's really difficult for me to make any big claims when trying to pinpoint exactly what happened in the creation of this sport. I mean, to be fair, there are historians that have spent days, months, years trying to find some sort of indication of the actual origin of baseball. Me, I've just been doing, you know, some research here and there the past couple of days. But regardless, I mean, I think that rounders and, well, cricket for that matter, both had pretty big influences on the sport of baseball as we know it today. Now, as I mentioned in last week's episode, those two are basic stick and ball type games and are most likely the direct ancestors of baseball. I mean, if you think about it, they have similar rules and the general idea of the concept of them is pretty similar to that of baseball. Now, I would argue that it's almost an evolution of these sports and not really the same sport just kind of rebranded. I mean, I guess even continuing off of that, like, it's not really an Americanized version, but more of just a fast-paced and more challenging version of these ancestors with respect to them as well. But I think it's even more difficult 
to really pinpoint a location of where the game really started. I mean, we've heard a pretty good argument as far as Cooperstown is concerned, but what are some of the other arguments? And actually, as it turns out, the sport had a bunch of different versions as it started to spread through the rest of New York, as well as Philadelphia and Massachusetts. So, why didn't the Philadelphia, or in that case the Massachusetts versions, really catch on? And to find this out, we have to move about 200 miles southeast of Cooperstown, into New York City, New York. Now you see, back in 1845, a group of New York City men founded the New York Knickerbocker Baseball Club. One of the players, Alexander Joy Cartwright, would make some pretty big changes to the game, including having a diamond-shaped infield, complete with foul lines and a three-strike rule. Not only that, but he changed the initial tagging rule. Instead of simply throwing balls at the base runners, you now had to tag them with the ball, which is pretty smart if you think about it. One writer, John Thorne, talks about some of the differences that the Massachusetts game had and how ridiculous and honestly kind of silly that they seem today. For example, you didn't have to stay on the base path while you were running. Therefore, you could just go sprinting out into the outfield with a whole crowd of fielders running after you, trying to tag you out. Now, thinking about this in today's game just seems hilarious. You know, and there goes Fernando Tatis Jr., rounding second, and oh, it looks like he spotted Nolan Arenado with the ball. Tatis takes off into left field. Oh, now into center. Folks, he may go all the way. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. It just seems a little strange, doesn't it? (laughs) Now, I think the most important thing to point out is, I mean, yes, these rules in the New York version at least helped to set apart baseball from the other games of that time. And it really did make it unique. And I feel that many believe that this version of the game, you know, although it seemed inferior was kind of necessary. The Massachusetts version must have been an absolute spectacle to watch. I mean, fun for the fans and the players, but it all comes down to just this one big point. The game was trying to change from one that boys could play in a backyard at any point into something that would interest adults. And when it came to money and playing a competitive game, the New York rules just won out. Now, it may not have been a better game, you know, as I said before, but, you know, it was definitely a bit more of a profitable one. So, there we go. That's just about everything that I could dig up on the origins of baseball. And I really did try to find just about everything in the kind of short time frame that I had you know, from debunking that double-day theory to finding an alternate theory to, I guess, fill that one in, and then taking what I learned from those two and then trying to find, like, a single location for it. And, I mean, I'm sure, as you can still tell, I'm still not super confident with the history of early baseball. I just don't really feel satisfied with what I was able to dig up. I mean, it seems to me that baseball didn't really come from one place at one time. It more kind of seems like it was an idea that took off all around the country, that had a million different parts and variations that all eventually culminated into one fairly solid understanding of a sport that we call baseball. Now, I feel like this is a topic that you could continue to dig on for years and years, like I mentioned before, you know, before you could ever become truly satisfied. I mean, there's a lot to unpack and plenty of different angles to look from, but it seems like a pretty good way to waste a few hours here and there. That was Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler. If you want to listen to that podcast, you can check it out at kcsufm.com by navigating to podcasts. We'll be right back on the Rocky Mountain Review, so stay tuned. 
about me They call me mellow yellow Quite right, Heyo, it's me, DJ Wireda Joe. My show, Sunday Disposition, is from 11 to 1 on Sundays. Tune in and tell me what makes your disposition sunny. I'm Coda Babcock, and these are COVID-19 updates for Tuesday. Colorado State University reports over 3,600 cases of COVID-19 since May 2020 among students, staff, and faculty of the university. Around 96% of students submitted either a vaccine card or an exemption to CSU by Monday, along with over 92% of employees. Over 87% of students attending on-campus classes are are partially or fully vaccinated, and around 85% of employees have received at least one dose of an approved vaccine. Around 8% of students have exemptions for the vaccine, and around 7% of employees claimed an exemption. To submit your vaccine information to CSU, visit covid.colostate.edu. Larimer County and the CDC report high levels of community transmission for COVID-19. Larimer County recommends that in high transmission risk periods, residents take the following precautions. Get vaccinated as soon as possible if you are not already. Wear masks indoors and in crowded outdoor settings regardless of vaccination status. Be sure your mask has a snug fit and consider wearing a KN95 mask or a surgical disposable mask. Disposable masks can be adjusted by tying knots in the ear loops. Postpone all gatherings if possible, and if the event must occur, consider requiring all attendees to be vaccinated or limiting the number of invited households. If the event is indoors, consider moving it outdoors. Get tested for COVID-19 if you have any concerns over exposure or symptoms. The county reports a case rate of under 200 per 100,000 residents in the past week. 71 COVID-19 patients are currently in the hospital, and intensive care units are full at over 100% capacity. There have been over 35,000 cases of COVID-19 in the county, along with over 285 deaths. The state of Colorado reports over 660,000 cases of COVID-19 and over 7,400 deaths. Around 38,000 Coloradans received hospital treatment for COVID-19, and over 3.4 million are fully immunized in the state. For more information, go to covid19.colorado.gov. The United States reports at least 42.9 million cases of COVID-19 and nearly 690,000 deaths. Sunday, cases increased by over 119,000 and deaths increased by nearly 2,000. In the past two weeks, cases decreased by 18%, but deaths increased by 21%. The United States is experiencing escalating or unchecked community spread in all states, but some U.S. territories are near containment. Information from today's segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the Centers for Disease Control, and National Public Radio's Coronavirus Tracker. That's all for COVID-19 updates. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. This is Kerry King from Slayer. You're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. As Elizabeth Holmes faces trial over her Silicon Valley-based Theranos startup, many are debating over why Holmes is the only CEO facing fraud trial, despite her following a relatively common method used by startups. Former Reddit CEO Alan Powell says that sexism may play a role in her charges. Male CEOs often harm consumers at similar if not worse rates with faulty products. Powell said, quote, When you see which CEOs get to continue to wreak havoc on consumers and the market, it's people who look like the venture capitalists, who are mostly white men, end quote. For example, Powell pointed out how many male CEOs choose to step down amid controversy rather than handle it, such as Jules' former CEO, Kevin Burns, who resigned as discussion on Jules' youth-centered vaping advertising arose. Prosecutors, on the other hand, say that Holmes' fraudulent behavior was far worse than her peers, while hyperbole is common in CEO's discussion with investors, she claimed to have a miracle device with groundbreaking laboratory science despite having average technology that was failing to do even near what it was promising. Being a biotech company also changed the stakes compared to other tech startups. Social media app TikTok says it surpassed 1 billion users Monday. According to Kim Lyons at The Verge, 
TikTok became the most downloaded app in the first quarter of 2020, despite government concerns over data collection practices. ByteDance, the parent company of TikTok, found that its revenue in 2020 increased more than double compared to 2019's revenue, with a total of $34.3 billion. In August, the app saw monthly users continue to go up with 25% more users than the year before. This summer, ByteDance was valued at $425 billion. That's all for Tech News Highlights. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to KZSUFM. Now for Weird News with Ivy Winfrey. Hello there, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and sometimes things need to get a little bit weird, so here's a few of the weirdest stories I've found from around the world. A cryptocurrency trading hamster is currently outperforming stock giants like Warren Buffett and the S&P 500. According to Deepa Sharavam at National Public Radio, a hamster named Mr. Gox has been given the ability to trade cryptocurrencies through a high-tech hamster cage. It's designed so that when Mr. Gox runs on the hamster wheel, he can select among dozens of cryptocurrencies. Then, deciding between two tunnels to run through, he chooses whether to buy or sell. According to the Twitch account for the hamster, his decision is sent over a real trading platform with real money being used. Cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin or Ethereum are often traded and treated similar to stocks on the stock market. Through his cryptocurrency trading, Mr. Gox, the hamster, has gained a 20% profit in his crypto portfolio since he started trading in June, according to his Twitter account. As of September 12th, Mr. Gox was performing better than Bitcoin, the Nasdaq 100, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, and the S&P 500. The human behind Mr. Gox's accounts has not been revealed, but the Twitch account mentions that Mr. Gox is being well cared for and happy. Engineers at the University of Columbia have figured out how to cook 3D-printed chicken with lasers. According to Jennifer Ouellette at Ars Technica, a recent paper published in the journal Science of Food outlines how researchers figured out how to cook food as if it were in the process of being 3D-printed. The team behind the paper also were the team that figured out how to 3D print food items in 2007, originally printing edible 3D objects using things such as cake frosting, cheese, chocolate, and peanut butter. Jonathan Bludinger, one of the authors of the paper, says, quote, We noted that, while printers can produce ingredients to a millimeter precision, there is no heating method with this same degree of resolution. Cooking is essential for nutrition, flavor, and texture development in many foods, and we wondered if we could develop a method with lasers to precisely control these attributes. The scientists purchased raw chicken breast from a local convenience store and then pureed it in a food processor to get a food a smooth, uniform consistency for the food. They removed any tendons and refrigerated the samples before repackaging them into 3D printing syringe barrels to avoid clogging. The cooking apparatus used a high-powered diode laser, a set of mirror galvanometers, uh, galvanometers, or devices that detect electrical current by deflecting light beams, a fixture for custom 3D printing, laser shielding, and a removable tray on which to cook the 3D printed chicken. The results were that the laser-cooked chicken retained twice as much moisture as conventionally cooked chicken, and it shrank half as much while still retaining similar flavors. They also employed two taste testers to try the chicken and compared it with conventionally cooked chicken, who both said that the laser-cooked chicken tasted better. For future research, the team hopes to investigate ways to use multiple laser wavelengths to achieve both internal and external cooking simultaneously. They would also like to figure out how to reduce cross-contamination between cooked and raw-printed layers and how to develop software to enable users to tailor their own 3D-printed meals in the future. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and that's all the weird news I have for today. You're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And now for the weather. Today, we saw partly cloudy skies with a high of 82 and a low of 56, with 10-mile-per-hour winds and a 20% chance of rain. Wednesday, you can expect scattered showers with a high of 64 and a low of 42, with 14-mile-per-hour winds. Thursday will stay cool with partly cloudy skies and a high of 65, with a low of 41. Winds will be pretty slow Thursday. And for Friday, you'll have to tune in to KZSU Fort Collins on 90.5 FM this Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Cota Babcock, and information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, Stephanie Keel, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Lindsay Johnson, Eliza Droder, 
Maddie Erskine, Samuel Bailey, Ben Kruger, Ben Haney, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Melissa Ronaldo, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time. Bye.